From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. The College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, was founded in 1843. It's the oldest Jesuit and Catholic college in New England, and one of the oldest in the whole country. Despite 178 years of educating students, Holy Cross's current president, Vincent Rougeau, represents two huge firsts in the history of the college. He is the first lay president at Holy Cross, which means he's not a Jesuit or a priest of any kind. He's also the first black president of the school. President Rougeau and I talked recently, just a few weeks after the end of his first academic year as president. He told me what his experience as this trailblazer has been like and what he had wanted to do during his first few months on campus. It involved a lot more listening than talking. President Rougeau is a legal scholar, and he came to Holy Cross after serving as dean of Boston College's law school. And so I asked him about how his experience in the law has affected his views on social justice and how a Jesuit college can be a force for good in the world, especially as higher ed institutions face an increasingly competitive landscape. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, President Vincent Rougeau, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks, and it's a pleasure to be with you. So you've, I think, completing or completed your first academic year as president of Holy Cross. I'm curious what surprised you the most or something that's really surprised you in your first year, something that uh, you, as you, you learned in this role, um, you thought, oh, I was not expecting that uh, in this in this job. Well, I think what's always surprised me about these leadership roles is just how much of it really just involves uh, relationships and people. I mean, you are spending a lot of time getting to know people, getting to know the culture. Um, and, uh, you know, even if you're doing things that you're familiar with uh, from other other roles we've had that might be similar, uh, you know, each, each institution is unique in terms of its culture, of course, but also... Uh, I think leadership is really so heavily about uh, getting to know people and understanding people, and you know, allowing them to get to getting to, allowing them to get to know you, and you know, building a sense of trust and engagement. So uh, it just takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. It's I was going to say work. that something like that it, you can't just do that in a, a few minutes, and it sometimes could feel maybe not as productive as other things, just to sit and to be with people and to kind of share stories or just to get to know people. Um, exactly. And so, yeah. So at this time, I don't know, this is the Ignatian spirituality practice of an examine, right? An examine of consciousness you do at the end of a day, or you could do at other times. So th that's the, the first part here. I'm curious, like, uh, looking back over this year and a kind of examine of your first year, that's like a highlight, like a favorite moment. Um, and also maybe one of the, a, a challenge that came up that was, uh, that was difficult to navigate through. Um, so yeah, either, either one of those, if you want to start with. Well, I have to say the uh, the installation was wonderful. It was overwhelming. Uh, it was, uh, you know, planning for it was really complex. So many different parts to it. But the opportunity to bring together uh, all the segments of this community, to bring uh, people from my life, my family, from colleagues, uh, friends, uh, to to the event, and to have an opportunity to to speak to everyone in that context 
was uh, just tremendous and uh, really almost kind of life-changing for me. It was, uh, I can't imagine that I've had a similar moment. And um, we also, I think, were affected by the fact that the community hadn't really been together because of COVID uh, mm. in that way for a long time. Uh, not only because you know you don't have installations all the time, but also just because people just hadn't been on campus in that way. So, uh, you know, I just found it uh, really, really special. I know my family was 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 really moved by the experience. Uh, you know, I had old friends from childhood who were there, and uh, it was it was just a great great event. The students were wonderful. It was, uh, you know, the faculty and the staff, everyone just. Uh, came together in a really nice way. So that was very, very special. And I'll always, always remember that. Um, I think in terms of a challenge, I think the challenges of COVID um, just were constant. You know, you, every time we thought that we'd made some progress, um, and we did, there were always new issues that we had to think through. Uh, and uh, even though it got a little bit easier because you know we've been living with it for a while, I I think I had not really fully reckoned with how um, what it would mean to have COVID as sort of a constant presence uh, in an ongoing way in our lives uh, and in the life of of our institutions. Um, so you know that was something that you know it was hard to actually prepare for because it's it, you know we just had no way of knowing what it was going to deliver. <laughs> but we managed to work our way through it. But I have to say it was, uh, you know, it, it was tough at times. Were there any elements to like a COVID response or living with that reality that you thought went particularly well, things that you're proud of? Because um, I know that was a challenge certainly for anyone involved in education, especially in higher ed, which is a residential where people are there and all kinds of those questions, like either things that kind of guided your your thinking or um, things you wanted to keep at the center, certain values that you feel like uh, really served you well in that time? Well, you know, early on we had to, you know, we had to impose a, a vaccine requirement for everyone. And, you know, that was one of the more difficult moments, figuring out how to do that, how to address people's concerns uh, who uh, maybe were, you know, hesitant or resistant to the idea of getting a vaccine. But a really great thing that came out of it was that we, um, we worked with the students to get them on board, and uh, you know, as a part of the work we did, there was a we offered them a reward, a concert with a with a top pop artist, uh, the Kid Leroy, and uh, they didn't know until uh, you know they had met the goal of the vaccination goal, and uh, you know we were able to have the Kid Leroy here on campus as part of uh, you know their celebration, and it was just wonderful to see their excitement, their engagement around. You know, working together to do something that was good for the community, and uh, but also, I think the idea of uh, you know being able to praise them and celebrate them for for their engagement with this tough work of making the community safe, uh, and knowing that you know it's a burden on everyone, not just the vaccines, but you know when people do get uh, get COVID, you know the isolation and all the other things that it involves. So um, I was really proud of them in that moment. And it was great to have that moment of celebration. Yeah, you mentioned kind of two celebrations in, in this time. And that is one thing I think you don't even kind of, you, maybe not in the top of the list of things that you miss, but you realize when in the pandemic, when you can't celebrate things you usually would, or you can't be with people without kind of always thinking like, you know, how dangerous is this? Um, but just to have, be able to have those times to just come together uh, in community, especially at a college and one of you know, the size of Holy Cross, I can imagine is 
kind of core to who you are. Um, so nice Absolutely. Yeah, community is central. Um, so when I think about, I, I imagine what life is like as a university president, I guess I imagine mostly meetings. And I'm curious though, like what your, what your life is like or what your, your day job is like, um, something about being a university president that I might not know having never been it. Um, yeah, I think it is interesting, particularly in the beginning of your time in this role, you, you spend a lot of time in meetings. You, uh, I'm going back to what I started with in terms of getting to know people, that's part of it. But then there's just a lot you have to learn. Right. How does the institution run? How is it structured? Where are things working well? Where are things not working so well? Uh, you know, what, how do people communicate uh, across you know, various areas? Uh, how do you deal with change across those areas? So obviously part of what you're doing in your first year is assessing how the institution functions, uh, where changes may need to be made, uh, and how to implement those changes in a, in a constructive way. You're also working with people who understand too that you know there's a new leader, there will be change. So there's just a lot to do, and a lot of it just involves sitting down and meeting and planning. Plus, you know, just the everyday uh, work of being in a college. You know, we, you've got to get schedules out, you've got to hire faculty, you've got to do all kinds of things that whatever else is going on still have to be done. So that first year uh, for a new president uh, is tremendous in the amount of, of work it involves, but you know, you're just in it and you don't really think about it mm. until it's over. <laughs> sure. Um, so, and I know that like often when there's a transition in leadership, you know, there's, they, I, there's, you know, great minds in leadership would say a leader should not come in and immediately change everything. Uh, cause you're going to, you have to build that trust in those relationships. And yeah. So how did you navigate that as you kind of notice things that things you want to focus on to change, but knowing that if you just kind of came in and just again, steamrolled, uh, it probably wouldn't work too well. So my first, uh, my first, uh, I guess, action, uh, in it as the leader was to, to listen. And I told people that's what I was going to do. Uh, I wanted to hear from them about their experience, what they loved about Holy Cross, what was central and important to them, what they thought maybe wasn't working so well, what needed change, what opportunities uh, were ahead of us that we wanted to try to seize. I mean, I had some ideas, uh, obviously, through the interview process and that, you know, from an outsider's perspective that I thought I'd like to move forward. But I made it very clear to everyone that my formulation of those ideas was going to be uh, in meaningful engagement and conversation with, with the community. So really we spent uh, almost the first year doing work that we call calls to conversation, where we invited various constituencies together to talk and to share. So uh, I think that was a pretty critical part of, of how I started and became a critical part of how I actually made decisions about what could or couldn't or shouldn't change. Sure. Are there any examples of, of ideas you had that you've been discussing with people and discerning and moving forward, kind of things at the, the top of your priority list that you're most excited about in year two? Well, one thing that uh, became very clear uh, across the entire community was we have a very special uh, situation as a liberal arts college in that we were in an urban setting. We're in the city of Worcester. And the city of Worcester has gone, is going through a remarkable renaissance right now. Uh, and in some ways it's caught a lot of people off guard and a lot of people who haven't been to Worcester in five years or so we are just overwhelmed by how the city has changed. It's growing rapidly, there's a lot of energy. Um, and we've spent a lot of time as a community here at Holy Cross talking about 
that relationship? How do we, uh, what's our relationship with the city of Worcester? Is it a relationship of uh, mutuality, which we hope it would be and should be? Uh, where have we maybe not been in that kind of relationship with the city? What does the city think about its relationship with us, the, the members of that community? And we've invited members of the community to be in conversation with us as well about that relationship. I think it's a good relationship, but I think it needs, uh, it's going to develop, I hope, in a way that will strengthen both the college and the city going forward, because I think we see new opportunities to work together in ways that perhaps in the past we hadn't imagined. So sure. I think that's been a great process. Yeah, I know that there's always, you hear those stories of what they call what town gown tensions. Uh, I grew up near Princeton, New Jersey, where the, the town and the university certainly uh, always had some fun disagreements. There's big <laughs> debates right now between the city of Berkeley, California and the University of California in Berkeley. Um, and I, I know for, for you too, like the, the kind of sense of making those connections, you wrote kind of a little bit about this in America Magazine. I wanted to ask you, I think this is maybe a connected thing, the kind of the idea of focusing on the, the needs and the dignity of the marginalized, kind of those mm -hmm. on uh, the margins. And that was a piece you, you wrote for America about kind of how do we, what is like the future of Catholic higher ed? What, you know, what could help us? And you said really should be focusing on this. And I'm curious for you to focus on the needs and dignity of the marginalized. That can be, I think, a real challenge, especially at a place that is a, a private elite uh, liberal arts college um, where a lot of the students come from pretty you know, high socioeconomic backgrounds. How do you do that? And how do you prevent a school like Holy Cross from being accessible only to the elite? Well, first we have to think really carefully and internally in terms of our own community about our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, which we've done here. I think uh, it, that work started before it came and we're, we're continuing that work. Um, I speak to that as I did in that America article from our position as a Jesuit Catholic institution. I think we, our faith commitment, our mission um, is grounded in a sense that we embrace the the dignity of all of all human human beings. Right? The we are we are men and women for and with others, but uh, we're also a faith that you know is grounded in this respect for the dignity of the human person, uh, who's made in the image and likeness of God. So that's the first place. And then I think we have to look carefully at what we're offering. We are offering this extraordinary education, as you said, and if we're not careful, it will become the province of a certain kind of elitism. Now, elitism isn't all bad when it's a way of, of creating a sense of excellence in the work that we do, but it is bad when it's exclusionary to the extent that there are people who are qualified to take advantage of what we offer, but we're not reaching out to them. We're not making this opportunity available to them. Uh, and you know, you, this came on the heels of our conversation about Worcester. I mean, Worcester is a very diverse city, and there are bright young people in the city from all kinds of backgrounds who should have the opportunity to have a Holy Cross education. Are we doing what we need to do to make that opportunity apparent to them and to reach them and to bring it forward to them and, and to invite them into a conversation with us about what our uh, education here could offer them uh, and to make that opportunity meaningful and possible? So those are the kinds of things I think we have to do. We have to step away from kind of waiting for people to find us. And we have to go out and to and engage the people uh, who, you know, who could be a part of this community and look for them in different places. 
Sure. And that's a big emphasis in the, the Catholic Church writ large right now. So used to people just showing up at their neighborhood church for mass. And that, that doesn't really work the same way anymore. Kind of have to leave where you are to kind of go out to where you have yet to be. And um, I'm curious for you just to kind of look back on your own life a little bit now. Um, there's a great piece kind of introducing you on the Holy Cross website that we'll link to uh, in the show notes here. that talks a little bit about your family, eight generations in southwest Louisiana. I read there that your grandparents founded a Catholic parish for the black community in the city of Lake Charles. So just curious about how your family, um, your ancestors, your parents influenced your faith and your career path. Yeah, I mean, faith, uh, you know, the Catholic faith for our family was always central. It just, uh, it was sort of something, as you mentioned, has been handed down over the generations. We've always been part of these Catholic communities in South Louisiana and um, where that was how the community was organized. The life of uh, my grandparents and their parents was organized around their parishes and the, the community's participation in, in, in parish life and in you know, the rituals of the church. Um, and, you know, it was a way that the, the, the culture was rooted in this understanding of an identity uh, grounded in in this these Catholic traditions, uh, but it was also a, co- a community that was marginalized within the church, uh, not fully embraced and not fully participant in um, a lot of the Catholic institutions, certainly in, in Louisiana, but also uh, around the country uh, because of the way that the country was, um, you know, uh, hamstrung or sort of distorted by uh, structural racism and other types of racism. So uh, what it's done for me and what I think it's done for my family was it gave us a sense of the the messiness of uh, the world, how you can be a part of something that is incredibly meaningful to you and really important to you, but also recognize that there are aspects of it that are flawed and uh, it motivated all of us to be agents of change, to push as hard as we possibly could for, uh, you know, to be to be fully recognized, not only within the church, but, you know, within society. And so, you know, my parents' participation in the civil rights movement was a real eye-opener for all of us children about how one can move through the world rooted in a certain understanding of who you are and your faith commitments and using that to make life better for others. So um, I think that's what's really always been my motivator. I think whatever gifts and talents I have, I wanna try to use them to uh, make the world a better place for more people. Uh, Knowing and having experienced myself the issues of discrimination and marginalization, but also knowing that uh, I've had great moments of joy and acceptance too, and trying to build that for more people. Um, to continue on your background a little bit, when I was getting ready for this interview, I reached out to one of my favorite professors from graduate school at Notre Dame, who you know pretty well. Her name is uh, Kathy Caveney. Oh, yes. uh, she overlapped with you at Notre Dame. And then when you got to BC, I don't know if you stole her or gently invited or whatever it was, <laughs> but she followed you and ended up at BC with you as well. Um, so I wrote her yesterday and I said, I'm interviewing uh, President Rougeau. What should I ask him? And I thought she would give me some like good, juicy, you know, um, gossip or something. But no, she said, uh, ask him about his experience as a lawyer and teaching real estate law and how that contributed to his views on social justice. 
Oh wow! See, I knew Kathy would be able to like give me a real zinger here. <laughs> she she wrote she within two minutes wrote back. To me. She was ready. <laughs> um, well, actually, yeah, it was um, it was a great way to think about how our society is structured around so many different issues. Around so in in the United States, which you know is rooted in a in a capitalist economic structure. The idea of being able to purchase property, as we've heard so much about, uh, is central to building wealth, right? It's the way that people have moved into the middle class. And uh, it was a very intentional move on the part of this of the, of the government, particularly after World War II, to expand that ownership opportunity. And many, many, many people in this country are now the beneficiaries of that opportunity for grandparents for, or to build wealth and to pass that wealth down by saying, we can sell a house, we can buy a better house, or our children can use money we have in a house to do things, businesses, college, whatever. But it's also something that was specifically denied. That opportunity was specifically denied to uh, certain categories of people. So, you know, returning veterans, African-American veterans, or Latino veterans were either excluded from those programs or forced to invest in areas that were redlined in cities where they, their investment did not grow. It often, you know, maybe even became lost value almost entirely, at least for a very long time. So now the conversations we're having as a society around intergenerational wealth are taking us back to a lot of decisions that were made decades ago around who could buy housing, where they could buy it, whether or not uh, they had an opportunity to, you know, see that investment uh, grow. and. Uh, is at the heart of so many issues that we're facing now around inequality and exclusion. So it was a great way for me to bring to students ideas about structural injustice through something that they were all very fam familiar with, you know, a house, the house that they wanted to buy or that their parents had bought, that they'd grown up in, uh, and to get them to think about how the law and social structures and the economy are all integrated in ways that we need to think about carefully when we are lawyers and sort of key actors in the structures and in that system. How did you come to legal, being a legal educator? What was the move there? I know you had practiced law and then had made a, a shift in your career. Yeah, so like a lot of people right out of law school uh, in when the late 1980s or even today, uh, my first thought after leaving law school was to join a big law firm. I thought that's probably what I should do. That's the way I'll learn about you know legal practice at a high level. and. Um, I have to say, uh, I had not done a whole lot of personal discernment about whether or not that was the right move for me, but it just seemed to be the thing that, that the, the, the correct thing to do at the time. Um, the discernment happened once I got there, <laughs> and I realized that maybe it wasn't the right move for me. Not because I didn't learn a lot and didn't benefit from the experience I did, but as I looked forward, I had to ask myself, is this really where I see myself in five years? Is this something that um, I'm going to be successful in, uh, you know, using the strengths and talents that I have in the way that I want to use them, or do I need to think about other things? So I made the decision, you know, after about two years that I should think about other, other directions, other ways to use my law, law, law degree. And uh, in, through a number of steps and the love of friends and family found my way to uh, applying for some teaching jobs and uh, fortunately got a wonderful opportunity to teach at Loyola University, Chicago School of Law. And 
very quickly realized that something had changed. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I was in an environment that was I was much more suited to, and where I really felt that um, I could contribute and grow in ways that were just you know suited to the person that I am. So you've been connected in higher ed for a number of decades now, and it's like no secret, it's a difficult time for higher ed kind of around the country, fewer students, there's questions about costs. There's even some big kind of existential questions about value of a college education. And then even at places, even Jesuit schools, some like there is a move toward uh, like specialized studies, really kind of career oriented education, but Holy Cross kind of remains a, like a broadly liberal arts college. And I'm wondering what your pitch is, say, to a prospective student or a family if they're thinking about school. Why a liberal arts education uh, today? Um, why is that still valuable? Yeah, we, uh, we are totally committed to the idea of liberal arts education. And you're right, in this time, it can be complicated or difficult to get people to understand that you don't necessarily need to organize a college career around the kind of pre-professional path. You know, this t major will lead to this job when I finish college. I mean, there's a wonderful certainty in that and there's a value in that, but what we're offering is a broad, well-rounded, holistic education. And what we try to point students to is, look, we do offer pathways to lots of areas that, you know, will lead to jobs. We can help you with that. but. That's not the purpose of your education. The purpose of your education is to be educated uh, and to learn some critical skill, critical thinking skills, writing skills, uh, how to think logically, uh, how to engage people across different areas of, uh, you know, of learning, uh, and how to use those things to uh, become a well-informed citizen, uh, a well-informed consumer of uh, of information uh, as well as of things and um what we see over time is people with liberal arts educations move through the world and achieve great success over time doing the things that uh you know anyone would choose to being uh, a physician for instance uh, i often point to dr anthony fauci because he was our graduate he was a classics major and you know now he's uh doing something not very immediately apparent from a classics uh, uh, degree, but what he gained in his education at Holy Cross were all the things that I just mentioned, and it allowed him to apply that learning in the context of a profession that he chose uh, and to gain leadership in that profession. I think one of the things liberal arts educations do is it gives people a range of skills that people tend to seek in leaders. And when they are moving through whatever they choose to do, whatever profession, be it teaching or um, law or uh, medicine uh, or business, they emerge, these individuals emerge because of the kind of educations they've had as, as people who can take on great, ever greater responsibility and, and really assume leadership. And not only is Holy Cross a liberal arts college, especially in a region of the country with a lot of famous liberal arts colleges, but you're a Catholic Jesuit one. So standing out in that group that way. And I'm curious for you in the the 21st century, how you see um, Holy Cross's Jesuit identity being lived out? How does that how does that manifest? How is that important? Well, I think we're offering something right now that is truly distinctive and essentially important uh, as a Jesuit Catholic liberal arts college. I mean, the benefits of liberal arts education are we've just talked about, and there are many great liberal arts institutions, but we're the only Jesuit Catholic liberal arts college. And 
when we bring our Jesuit Catholic identity, our, our mission as, as a Jesuit institution into the work that we do, I hope that we're providing something truly distinctive and notable when people assess what education can provide for them. You know, the concept of community that is rooted in this understanding of human dignity, uh, the idea of a holistic education that is trying to form men and women, um, as I said earlier, as people for and with others. So I often think of our Jesuit Catholic education as being other directed in ways that a lot of other educational institutions probably aren't oriented to. We are forming you and giving you an education, but we're also reminding you constantly of how are you going to use that education uh, in the context of the society that you will enter, where there will be all kinds of needs, all kinds of people who have not had the benefit of the education that you've just received. What are your responsibilities? And in this time in this country, where I, we are seeing, to just put it bluntly, a real breakdown in the coherence of our community uh, in the United States. You know, division, uh, hate, uh, you know, just all kinds of distrust in our institutions. We need young people who can go out into the world with this other directed focus and to help do some healing. Because if we don't do that, uh, I, you know, I. I worry very deeply for, for the future of our, of our country and of our world. So hopefully what we offer as Jesuit Catholic institutions is a source of meaningful engagement in community that our students can take with them and rebuild across the, the things that they do in a time where, where the need is, as I say, really desperate and you know, where the consequences of not doing this work are, are, are very, very grave. I know we're at time. Um, you, ha you have time for just one last question? Or sure, should, sure. Okay, I'm I sensitive to that. I know you must have a packed schedule. And we'll take this bit out. So before I let you go, President Rougeau, um, I was thinking about Jesuit identity. One of the things ab about you when was, your name was announced as the next president, you're the first lay president in the history of the College of the Holy Cross, first black president as well. And just wondering what those firsts, have you felt that, has that affected um, your experience in in some way what have you is that are people confused when there's not a jesuit president i'm just a, uh they think you're a jesuit do they assume you are i'm just curious uh you well, know what that has has been like to be not only a president for the first time at a, a college but also one who has these firsts uh tacked on next to your name well it is funny i do get called father every now and then people forget <laughs> so it's uh it's still some people are still getting used to it but i think the reception has been has been amazing yeah i feel this very acutely i mean it's i i feel a a, a deep sense of responsibility to the society uh as a lay leader of a jesuit institution but i also feel that they have formed me well you know my as i mentioned my very first job in academia was at a jesuit institution and my major leadership role in academia at Boston College Law School as a dean was at a Jesuit institution. I have spent, you know, the bulk of my career as an academic in Jesuit institutions living and learning from, with and learning from uh, Jesuits, uh, taking very seriously the opportunities that they presented to me to, uh, you know, engage more deeply with uh, their, the mission and identity of Jesuit institutions and of the society. So uh, I hope uh, I can do justice to, to that work. I think I can. Uh, and, you know, so that, that's something I think a lot about. And as, as far as being the first black president, um, 
I take that very seriously as well, but I hope it's an opportunity for us to remember the global nature of Catholic identity, uh, the global Catholic Church, and how rich uh, our Catholic tradition is, how many cultures it has engaged over the centuries. And so from, you know, the French and Spanish in a place like Louisiana uh, and uh, all across Africa and Asia, um, these are important parts of how Catholicism uh, has is lived in the world. And I think, I hope I can embody, you know, just part of that diversity in, in the person that I am in, the, uh, in this nation at, at this time and to allow other people to see me and to recognize and, and feel that they too can can be a leader in uh, in the church uh, through its institutions and in any other way that they that they they are called to. Well, President Vincent Ruggiero, thank you again so much for taking the time. It's been a really interesting conversation, and prayers for you. Hopefully, you get some rest this summer, and uh, yeah, all the best in your year number two coming up. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being with you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.